Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Spending some time reconnecting with nature this summer? Here's a camping hack from L.L. Bean to make your next trip the best yet. Tired of your tentmates' flashlights shining in your eyes in camp? Bring an empty half-gallon milk jug or clear water bottle. Simply strap a headlamp around it, and it becomes a soft white lantern for everyone to see the light. For more camping hacks, visit youtube.com slash L.L. Bean. L.L. Bean. Be an outsider. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the original great Rob Silver. And today, this will probably be a brief uh, episode, a brief show. Um, There was only one uh, major so-so fight. We saw one of the best lightweight contenders. He's number six on my list of the top six lightweights in the world and that's uh William Cepeda he was spectacular in his second round knockout of Jaime Arboleda we'll talk about that fight I have one question for the Q&A from my uh great friend from Philadelphia Toot the Barber one of the top barbers in Philadelphia he's such a great barber that you got not only Philadelphia Sixers and and Eagles coming to his barber shop for uh, haircuts, but he's got athletes, rappers, entertainers from all over the United States that fly to Philadelphia just so he could cut their hair. We're talking about the Philly legend Toot the Barber. He's got a question about Roberto Duran, and the entire Q&A session will be on that question because it's one of the best questions I've ever received on the podcast. And I will end the podcast with my part two historical overview of the greatest fighter of my lifetime of the last 45 years. The series is over. I will talk about what the next series will be at the end of the podcast. But that today, part two, historical overview of Sugar Ray Leonard. But before we begin the podcast, once again, I want to promote the Patreon uh, extra exclusive podcast that I've been doing on the Patreon side of the fight game media podcast. Now this is a this is behind a this is behind a payroll paywall, five dollars a month, and you'll hear my life and times of Muhammad Ali. We already have three episodes up. This series is me looking at the ten greatest fights in Muhammad Ali's career, and from my father's perspective, are uh things my father told me, conversations my father and I. 
I had throughout my lifetime about Muhammad Ali and what he told me what was going on in the 1960s during Ali's reign as the heavyweight champion of the world and the 1970s when Muhammad Ali came back. I didn't start watching boxing until 1977, which was at the tail end of Ali's career. The bulk of Ali's career, and we're talking 1964 to 1976, that is from memories of what my father told me about what was going on in the United States, what was going on in Ali's career, and what was going on through, through, uh, through Ali's build-up to each of these 10 fights that I will be talking about and what was going on during the fight and the aftermath. And the cherry on the top, I give you through my buddy from UK, Martin's YouTube channel, Vintage Boxing, the timestamp, and I and I ask you to go to the exact timestamp I give you for that link for the fight, whatever Ali fight I'm talking about, and then I ask you to mute it, and then watch along as I announce the fight. And ladies and gentlemen, ask anybody who's a Patreon subscriber. I'm a better announcer than any of these buffoons out there because I know the difference between a jab and a cross, right? I know the intricacies of these fighters that the bums like Todd Grisham and Mauro Ronaldo don't know. And Mauro Ronaldo pissed me the fuck off doing the Javante Tank Davis-Ryan Garcia fight after the fight was over comparing Ryan Garcia to Sugar Ray Leonard. Man, get the fuck out of here. I digress. The link for the Patreon is in the is is in the notes for the podcast. When you click on the podcast, you go down to the notes, you will see the link for the Patreon uh, portion of the podcast. And not only do you get my um Life and Times of Muhammad Ali series, three parts of the of the ten part series, a monthly uh series you'll also get my the entire 10-part series i did last year on the greatest upsets in boxing history which included the mike tyson buster douglas shocking upset and i did an entire recreation of that fight with the broadcast as well okay on to saturday night's uh only real fight williams have paid a second round knockout of jaime arboleda um, this was a mismatch. Arbolade is a decent fighter, but Cepeda is a very good fighter. He throws a lot of jabs. He throws punches and punches. He averages over 100, like anywhere from 100 to 110 punches per round. And he's a pressure fighter, and he keeps coming, and everything's behind that jab. He will beat the Arbolators. The Somebody had the nerve to say on Twitter that Isaac Cruz will beat Cepeda. Man, Cepeda will beat the shit out of Isaac Cruz. Isaac Cruz has no defense, and he it, it, he comes right at you. Cepeda will blitz that guy. All right, he will beat him like George Foreman beat Joe Frazier. Man, get the fuck out of here. Cepeda will beat the Isaac Cruz, the Raleigh Romeros, the the Ryan Garcias, the the, 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 the those type of uh, lightweights. Can he beat the five lightweights in front of him? Okay, let's go one by one. Let's go number the number fifth lightweight I have in the world right now is Lomachenko. He's fighting the number one lightweight I have in the world right now in Devin Haney. Will Lomachenko beat Haney? I don't think so, but I'll save that prediction in a few weeks. I'll tell you exactly what I think. Can Loma beat 
Cepeda? Not now. Uh, three, four, five years ago? Yes, because Lomachenko was a top-tier counterpuncher. But Lomachenko has lost a step. As And as you saw in this fight against Teofimo Lopez, he has trouble with guys like a Cepeda. Uh, so I see Cepeda beating Lomachenko by decision if they ever fought. My number four lightweight in the world is Frank Martin, and I think Cepeda is tailor-made for Frank Martin. Frank Martin is a softball who uh, uh, <laughs> throws punches and bunches. He reminds me of a young Mark Two Sharp Johnson. He reminds me of a, St- a Stevie Little but Bad Johnston where he throws a lot of punches, a lot of movement. Frank Martin, I think, beats Cepeda. It wouldn't be an easy fight for Martin. Cepeda will make him work for that win. But I see Frank Martin beat Cepeda. My number three lightweight in the world is Shakur Stevenson. William Cepeda is tailor-made for Shakur Stevenson. Uh, William Cepeda, matter of fact, was offered a fight against Shakur Stevenson last year. Cepeda turned it down. Because he knows Shakur Stevenson, the greatest defensive fighter on the planet right now active, would make Cepeda pay for those for, for, for his aggression. A fighter like a Shakur Stevenson makes a fighter like William Cepeda pay for their nonstop aggression aggressive because of their top tier defense and because they're master counter punching. Same thing with Devin Haney, my number one uh lightweight. Devin Haney would make Zapata pay for his aggression. Tank Davis would make Zapata pay because Tank Davis showed in his fight against Ryan Garcia that that left cross counter, just like he did against Raleigh Romero. Now, Zapata's better than Romero and Garcia. But Cepeda, as shown in the first round against Arboleda, gets hit too often with his aggression. His defense is not top tier. To beat a Javante Tank Davis, you have to have top tier defense. Cepeda's going to slug with Tank, and Tank, like he did against Ryan Garcia, like he did against Raleigh Romero, is going to bide his time, right, and then counter and catch and time Cepeda and put him to sleep with a picture-perfect left cross right down the middle. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away, specifically the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. What's up? It's Kaylee Cuoco. When it comes to travel, we all have a happy place. I just went to my happy place. I just went to Maui, and it was truly amazing. Priceline has always been about getting you to your happy place for a happy price with deals you really can't find anywhere else, like up to 60% off select hotels in Costa Rica or five-star hotels for two-star prices in Cabo. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Now, we continue with the theme of 135 pounds, and why not? Because the 135-pound class is the hottest in the division right now. But we're going to take a step back. 
my man Toot the Barber ask at Ask Rob Silver any questions you can go hashtag Ask Rob Silver ask me such a great question that I decided that this would be the only question I answer because this is going to be a very thorough answer Toot once wanted to know about Duran at 135 pounds how indestructible was he how dominant was he because I had talked about the time my father went to see Duran lose his first fight in a non-title fight against Esteban de Jesus and I also toot and uh, another guy that I talked to heavily and that that uh, is a very knowledgeable boxing fan on Twitter Erie's Erie Erie Avenue's finest Philadelphia and they were going back and forth about Duran and I and um I believe Erie believes Duran was indestructible at lightweight and you know too likes to ask questions and was you know debating whether or not this was fact and so they came to me asking me my thoughts so too to make it a complete answer to your question I wrote an article several years ago on a series of articles on fight game media uh, fight game media network.com on the greatest lightweights of all time and I had Duran number one I had Pee Wee number two I'm going to read the article that I wrote about Duran so you could so you could see for yourself how dominant he was and why I consider him the greatest lightweight of all time and the greatest Latin fighter of all time. All right, here we go. The article I wrote about Duran several years ago. The history of the lightweight division, while not as talent-laden as the welterweight and middleweight divisions, does possess a top tier of fighters on the same level. The top four 135-pound fighters of all time like it's 147 pound and 160 pound brethren have an argument to be included in the 10 greatest fighters of all time Benny Leonard is arguably the greatest Jewish fighter of all time Joe Gans was the first major African American sports star Pernell Whitaker is on the short list of both the greatest southpaw and defensive fighter of all time all three aforementioned fighters were incredible craftsmen in the ring the one thing separating them from the greatest lightweight of all time was that man's incredible ferociousness inside the ring. That man was Roberto Duran. In the history of boxing, there was never a fighter who combined ring IQ, fearlessness, technical skill, and savagery better than the Panamanian legend Roberto Duran. Duran, like the vast majority of great fighters, grew up in impoverished conditions. As an adolescent, he engaged in street fights with grown men on the streets of Panama City for meager change. This led to Duran turning pro after only 32 amateur fights at the tender age of 16. With the guidance of wealthy Panamanian millionaire Carlos Eleta as his manager, Duran's hunger and savagery inside the ring saw him destroy everyone thrown at him in Panama. Elena then brought Manos de Piedra, the hands of stone, to the United States, and in his 25th fight, Duran destroyed lightweight contender Benny Hueltas in only 66 seconds. This fight took place in the hallowed Madison Square Garden, and immediately Duran caught the eyes of boxing fans and the media. Around this time, Duran hooked up with two trainers who would refine his skill, the, legend, the legendary Ray Arcel and the legendary Freddie Brown. They would bring both disciplined and fatherly figures, two huge gaps in the then 20-year-old Panamanian dy- Dynamo's life. 
It would all come to fruition on June 26, 1972, just 10 days after Duran's 21st birthday. My father, who recently had been released from prison, was among the over 18,000 fans in a sold-out Madison Square Garden to see the undefeated Panamanian juggernaut attempt to wrest the WBA lightweight title from the great Scottish champion, Ken Buchanan. Buchanan had defeated Duran's idol, Ishmael Laguna, the same night Duran destroyed Wetas to become champion. I was four years old at the time, and all my father talked about the weeks leading up to the fight was that Duran was going to be the next great Latin superstar. Duran knocked Buchanan down seconds into the first round and was breaking Buchanan down when late in the 13th round, Duran landed a vicious low blow that could have substituted for a vasectomy. Buchanan could continue, and because the referee did not call the low blow a flagrant foul, Duran was awarded the fight and the title. It was the beginning of the most dominant reign in the history of the 135-pound division. After losing his first fight, a non-title fight at 140 pounds against the excellent Puerto Rican fighter Esteban de Jesus, a fight my father attended, Duran successfully defended his title three times in 1973, all by knockout. Then, on March 16, 1974, Duran gained, gained revenge for his only loss by beating de Jesus in Panama City. Duran, like in their first fight, was hurt and knocked down in the first round. This time, however, Duran was able to finally break down the Jesus and knock him out in the 11th round. Duran's biggest problems were always with boxers who had lots of foot movement. However, in the era of the 15-round title fight, Duran's ability to cut off the ring and wear his opponents down with hellacious body shots. Hold on, I, I, I lost my... I lost my... Spot here. Oh, with fallacious body punching was the reason he would always get the best out of these fighters. On March 2nd, 1975, again in Panama City, Durant faced such a fighter in Ray Lampkin. Over the first 10 rounds, Lampkin's, Lampkin's constant movement was, frust was frustrating Durant. Durant, however, never strayed away from going to the body, broke down Lampkin, leading to Lampkin sucking air late in the fight. Finally, in the 14th round, Durant left, landed a left hook to the body and head combination that put Lampkin to sleep. Dur Lampkin was still lying prone on a canvas when Duran was being interviewed. Duran's remarks were as savage as the knockout, as he claimed he wasn't in tip-top shape, and if he had trained, he would have killed Lampkin. It was the show of machismo that made Duran a huge favorite among Latin fans throughout the world. This was also be the case when he fought other Latin fighters. Didn't matter if they were Dominican, Puerto Rican, or Mexican. Duran received the overwhelming cheers and support. After successfully defending against two excellent but light-hitting fighters in the Dominican Villamar Fernandez and the Puerto Rican Edwin Viret in 1977, Duran was increasingly having problems making 135 pounds. He had an extreme bad habit of gaining 50 to 60 pounds between fights due to excessive eating and partying. Duran decided to fight one more time in an attempt to become the undisputed lightweight champion of the world. That fight occurred in Las Vegas on January 21st, 1978 against the WBC champion and the only man to ever defeat him Esteban De Jesus. Unlike their first two meetings, De Jesus decided to stand and slug with Duran. There has never been a lightweight in existence who could defeat Duran in such a manner. Duran batted De Jesus for 12 rounds before De Jesus corner threw in the towel after Duran dropped him twice in the 12th round. Just a few months later, Duran vacated 
both belts ending the greatest reign in lightweight history. Duran's reign as a 135-pound champion for six years of 12 defenses. He, Duran reigned as a 135-pound champion for six years and 12 successful defenses. He was viewed by many boxing ex- experts as the best fighter of the 1970s, a decade that included iconic runs by Muhammad Ali and Carlos Monzon. Not only is Duran the greatest Panamanian and lightweight fighter of all, a Latin fighter of all time, he will always be considered, in my opinion, the greatest lightweight fighter of all time. Now, who in the last 30 years could have given Duran a run for his money at 135 pounds during Duran's prime too? There are only three. All right. Shakur Stevenson today, Pernell Whitaker, and Floyd Mayweather. Now, Shane Mosley was a great lightweight, but Shane Mosley was a, an aggressive boxer puncher, and Duran would have put Shane Mosley to sleep because despite Shane Mosley's hand speed, Shane Mosley does not have a lot of great lateral movement. Shane Mosley stood in the pocket, and he would outpunch you, sort of like a light, or sort of a very similar, very similar to Meldrick Taylor, and I don't think Meldrick Taylor could have beaten Durant at lightweight either, even though uh, Meldrick Taylor, majority of his career was at junior welterweight, but uh, Shane Mosley was a Meldrick Taylor-like lightweight, and Durant would have knocked Mosley out, right, um, now, Floyd, in his prime at 135 pounds, would have given Durant trouble, but if they fight at 15 rounds, Duran eventually either knocks him out late or wins a close decision. Shakur Stevenson, same thing. I think Duran, because remember, Duran went to the body, something that a lot of these fighters that fought up Floyd and Shakur would would stop doing because of the great counterpunching by both Floyd and Shakur. Duran didn't give a damn about your counterpunching because Duran was one of the greatest inside defensive fighters of all time. He would make you miss coming in as he as, as he cut the ring off and go to the body. You had to keep moving, keep moving, keep moving, keep moving. Could Floyd and Shakur move for 15 rounds? It wouldn't be like a lot of fighters that Floyd and Shakur have fought where they could just stand in front of you and make you miss. You can't do that against Duran. You got to move. The, the guy, I think, with the best shot at beating Duran, and and you could make an argument that he could beat Duran, and if they fought 100 times, maybe Duran wins 51 times and Pernell wins 49 times, Pernell Whitaker, because Whitaker could move for 12 rounds, and he could definitely move for 15 rounds because every fight I ever saw Pernell Whitaker in, he was as fresh in the 12th round as he was in the first round. Pernell could move and make you miss and not get tired. So I would say that of all the great lightweights since Duran gave up his lightweight titles in 1978, Pernell Whitaker has the single best chance of beating Duran. And it would be one of those two out of three uh, great trilogies. It would be it would be great fights. And, and Whitaker would go to Duran's body, something nobody did. So that's my answer thoroughly to your question too so shout out to Toot the Barber and shout out to Hall of Fame General Manager Erie Avenue's Finest on Twitter hope this uh, adds fuel <laughs> to your uh, to your uh, debate on the greatness of Roberto Duran 135 pounds 
the greatest Latin fighter of all time, and in my opinion, the greatest lightweight that ever lived. All right, now on to my final part, part two of my historical overview of who I consider the greatest fighter of my lifetime of the last 45 years, and that is Sugar Ray Leonard. All right, after Sugar Ray retired in November of 1982, he became a full-time boxing announcer for both HBO and CBS Sports. But you could tell from it from when he was announcing that he was he was not satisfied with just being an announcer, but that detached retina was keeping him from taking a chance at making a comeback. But he did. In December of 1983, Sugar Ray Leonard announced to the world that he was coming back, that he was coming back, and he signed to fight with Philadelphia's own Kevin Howard. The fight was scheduled for February 1984, but that fight had to be postponed a couple of months because Leonard had to have more surgery on his detached retina on his right eye. And so people at the time, I remember my father at the time was like, why is he even trying this? He's making a good living as an announcer. He still had all these endorsements. What? You know, one thing you can't take out of a fighter is the desire one thing you can't take away from a fighter is his desire to fight. And so he uh, fought Kevin Howard eventually on May 11th, 1984 in Worcester, Massachusetts. Leonard was knocked down in the fourth round and he was hurt. And it was the first time Leonard had ever been knocked down. And even though Leonard came back and stopped Kevin Howard in the ninth round, Leonard looked very rusty, lackadaisical, and fight fans, including my father and I, were worried about his uh, health and his right eye. And so Leonard, at the post-fight press conference, despite the fact that he did come from, he did get off the canvas to win, announced his retirement. Now, Leonard was thinking about fighting the two top welterweights. And this would be a stepping stone. This fight with Kevin Howard would 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 would, would be a warm up to fight either Donald Curry or Milt McQuarrie. But after his performance, his lackadaisical performance against Kevin Howard, Sugar Ray Leonard said, "Forget it. I'm going to retire. I'm going back into retirement." Then, in March of 1986, Leonard was announcing was at ringside announcing the John Mugabe-Marvin Hagler fight, and he saw that Hagler had slipped to the point where he thought that if he could box for for 12 rounds, that he could beat Hagler, and he made overtures to Marvin Hagler's people, the Petronelli brothers, Bob Arum, Hagler's promoter, and Hagler had been wanting to fight Leonard his entire uh, middleweight reign since he won the title back in 1980. Marvin Hagler wanted Leonard badly, and Hagler said yes. But Hagler had to make some concessions. They signed to fight April 6, 1987. On April 6, 1987, the biggest middleweight title fight in the history of boxing took place. There has never been a middleweight title before or after as big. Middleweight title fight 
before or after as big. Hagler made a few major mistakes that in hindsight cost him. He allowed the fight to be scheduled for 12 rounds when 15 rounds would have suited him, as Leonard had been inactive for the past three years. The additional three rounds would have been a huge advantage for Hagler. Then, the night of the fight, Hagler made two huge mistakes in strategy. He tried to outbox the dancing Leonard and fought from an orthodox stance for the first four rounds. For those who you who do not know what orthodox stance is, Hagler was a softball. Orthodox is your is is your traditional uh, stance from a regular fighter who's. Uh, a regular who who starts with who's a righty. Hagler was a lefty. So Hagler, who's a softball, decided to fight as a righty, orthodox style, for the first four rounds, and he essentially gave them away. Beginning with the fifth round, Hagler reverted back to softball in an aggressive style, dominating the rest of the fight. He staggered Leonard several times down the stretch, and after 12 rounds, the fight was up for grabs. I had the fight dead even at 114-114 after it ended. Leonard won via split decision, and Hagler was angry. I always felt Hagler was to blame for his loss. Had he fought his usual softball style, I feel he would have either knocked out or handily defeated Leonard by decision. Also, had the fight been scheduled for 15 rounds, Leonard would have wilted under Hagler's constant pressure. That being said, Leonard's performance after being out of action for three years cemented his standing as the greatest fighter of my lifetime because now he had defeated four of my top 45 greatest fighters in the last 45 years. Hagler, Duran, Wilfred Benitez, and, Len- and Thomas Hearns. On November 7th, 1988, by the way, Leonard retired as soon as he beat Hagler. Hagler's people tried to lure him into a rematch. Leonard said no. And then, in 1988, Leonard decided to make a comeback and that comeback was scheduled for November 7th, 1988. Leonard made another comeback facing Donnie Lalonde in Las Vegas. They fought for Lalonde's WBC lightweight title, and the WBC created a super middleweight title just to make Leonard the first five-time world champion if he won that night. It was a bogus title, ladies and gentlemen. This was bullshit. This was bullshit. But you know what? The WBC super middleweight title eventually became a real title. But at that point in time, the division was new, and it was, and the WBC, as they always do, jumped in at a chance to uh, make additional money because there was a huge prize. Uh, by the way, this fight was promoted by Vince McMahon, Titan Sports. So they fought for Lalonde's WBC lightweight title and the newly created WBC's 168-pound title. So Lalonde had to make 168 pounds, not 175 pounds. So Lalonde had to stretch himself to make weight. This was also the first fight Angelo Dundee wasn't Leonard's trainer as they permanently split ways after Dundee felt he was shortchanged on his pay for the Hagler fight. Donnie Lalonde's size and awkwardness troubled Leonard. In the fourth round, a right hand to the top of Leonard's head dropped him for just the second time in his career. Early in the ninth round, Lalonde hurt Leonard with a right cross. Leonard fired back and hurt Lalonde with his own white right cross. He drove him to the ropes and landed a furious assault. Lalonde tried to tie up Leonard, but got dropped with a powerful left hook. He was ro- he, he got up, but he was dropped again, and the fight was stopped.
Sugar Ray Leonard was now a quote-unquote five-time world champion. Well, Sugar Ray thought about retiring but decided against it when he was offered a rematch with the thought of at the time washed up with the thought of at the time washed up Thomas Hearns. This fight will be scheduled on June 12th, 1989, a fight that my father and I went to see at the Kings uh, Kingsbridge Armory in the Bronx. Now, let me pull up what I wrote about that fight. Okay, here we go. On June 12th, 1989, Hearns left jab and reach once again gave Leonard hell, just like their first fight. He knocked down Leonard twice, and Leonard had the hitman in severe trouble twice. The fight was not the technical masterpiece like their initial encounter, and like their initial encounter as both men were significantly slower. It was, however, a fight full of drama, and Hearns seemed to have done enough to warrant a decision. Shockingly, the fight was scored a draw. In subsequent years, Lennon has has admitted that Hearns should have gotten the decision. Then on December 7th, 1989, Lennon fought Roberto Duran in the rubber match of their three-fight series, and it's a fight that should have happened. Both men looked washed up. Duran chased Lennon around the ring for 12 rounds, but Duran looked even worse than Lennon. Uh, Lennon got cut, but it wasn't... It, it it didn't impact the fighters. Leonard stayed outside and won an easy 12-round decision in one of the worst fights my father and I ever went to see on close circuit. And it was the final fight between members of the Four Kings, Marvin Hagler, Thomas Hearns, Roberto Duran, and Sugar Ray Leonard. And, you know, it's ironic. All four of those fights occurred between... 1980 and 1989, the entire decade of the 80s. None of those fights occurred before 1980 or after 1989. And you could see uh, a complete bio of all four fighters in the great multi-documentary series by Matt Whitecross on Showtime called The, uh, the Four Kings. And the greatest boxing book ever read by George Kimball called The Four Kings. So I would highly recommend for those who want to know more about Duran, Leonard, Hearns, and Hagler to watch that documentary and to read the book because both go hand in hand. It also talks about a Roberto Duran uh, relationship with the leader of Panama, General Omar Torrijos, and how he felt the U.S. government killed Torrijos in a plane crash that uh, many felt the CIA had their hands in. You you guys can go look it up. Go look it up. The United States government throughout the 1980s did a a lot of legal shit in South and Central America, in the Caribbean, in the Middle East, etc. All right. You don't believe me? Do your motherfucking research. Okay. After Leonard beat Duran, once again, he announced his retirement. And then 
And I think this was due to financial issues. Uh, Leonard had a very costly divorce with Juanita. Uh, it, stuff came out that he had hit Juanita during their marriage, that he had uh, abused cocaine and alcohol during their marriage. And so Juanita wanted substantial alimony uh, in their uh, divorce in, as a result of the divorce. So Sugar Ray, Sugar Ray Leonard once again needed uh, a big payday. So he signed to fight the young up-and-coming star, WBC Super Welterweight Champion, Terry Norris, on February 9th, 1991, the night of my father's 43rd birthday. So I took my father. Now, I bought tickets to take my father to see the Leonard Duran third fight debacle on, on close circuit in Madison Square Garden. This time, I paid tickets to go see Sugar Ray Leonard for the only time you ever fought in Madison Square Garden and the only time I ever saw Sugar Ray Leonard live. I took my father to see Sugar Ray Leonard versus Terry Norris, February 9th, 1991, Madison Square Garden. So on February 9th, 1991, I took my father to see Norris defend his title at Madison Square Garden against Leonard. It was my father's 43rd birthday. Leonard was 34 years old the night of the fight. And even though Leonard was a huge favorite, he fought like he was 10 years older than my father. From the opening bell, Leonard took a beating similar to the one Muhammad Ali took in his ill-fated comeback against Larry Holmes. For 12 rounds, Norris batted Leonard all over the ring. At any point in the fight, Norris could have stepped it up a notch and put Leonard to sleep. Like Holmes did with Ali, Norris idolized Leonard and put the brakes on and carried Leonard for the entire 12 rounds. When the fight ended, Leonard had lost every second of this round, was dropped a couple. Of, it was a brutal beating. It was a brutal beating. Uh, Norris won by a huge, huge, huge amount. I think one scorecard had like 120-104. It was ridiculous. It was a brutal beating. Leonard had no business, even at, even though he was only 34 years old, even though he had taken time off in between all his fights after 1982. He was shop-worn. He was old. And for some inexplicable reason, Leonard made a comeback six years later at the age of 40 against Hector Camacho. And he took another brutal beating before Camacho stopped him in the fifth round. And then that would be it. Sugar Ray Leonard finally retired. He finally retired. But despite those losses to Terry Norris and Hector Camacho, it doesn't deter from the fact that in his prime, and even past his prime, he beat all three of, the, of his uh, four kings brethren. He was the most marketable fighter in the history of the in the history of the sport up until that time. He was the first fighter to gross over a hundred million dollars in boxing. He would be, uh, of course. He would be superseded by Mike Tyson, Evander Holyfield, Oscar De La Hoya, Manny Pacquiao, Canelo Alvarez, Anthony Joshua, and of course, the king of pay-per-view, the king of profit profitability, uh, Floyd Mayweather. 
But Durant was the first $100 million man in boxing. I mean, not Durant. Sugar Ray Leonard was the first $100 million million man in boxing. And deservedly so. After the beating against uh, Camacho on March 1st, 1997, Sugar Ray Leonard retired with a record of 36 wins, three losses, one draw, 25 knockouts. And despite only having 40 fights, you know, people are like, well, he only had 40 fight fights. Uh, Mayweather had 50. Uh, he lost three times. Mayweather never lost. Sugar Ray Leonard beat three of the greatest fighters that ever lived, the Thomas Hurst, Marvin Hagler, and Roberto Duran. Floyd Mayweather's biggest win was against Manny Pacquiao. Now, I love Manny. Manny's an all-time great fighter, greatest Asian fighter of all time, greatest Filipino fighter of all time. He's not as great as Hagler, Duran, and Hearns were in their primes. All three of those guys would have put Manny in a hospice had they fought. Okay. All right, and um, don't even bring up Shea Mosley and Canelo Alvarez, the other two great fighters that are deaf. That, well, Mosley's in the Hall of Fame. Canelo's already in the Hall of Fame and retired today. Those guys aren't as great as the, the, the aforementioned three that I mentioned that Sugar Ray Leonard beat. So that's why Sugar Ray Leonard is my greatest fighter of the last 45 years. And ladies and gentlemen, that ends my 45 greatest fighters in the last 45 years project. It's taken two years to complete this. Next week, we will be doing a review on the George Foreman uh, movie that's out right now. We will also talk about Canelo's fight with John Ryder that's happening next Saturday night. Uh, I got Canelo knocking him out in the fifth round. We'll see what happens. This guy Ryder has no shot against Canelo. All right, we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about what Canelo's future looks like after that. Another Q&A session. And after next week, after I do the George Foreman uh, movie review, I will start my new project, and that is my 25 greatest knockouts in boxing history. So you have that coming up in two weeks as we begin anew with the historical overviews here on the Pound for Pound podcast. Until next week, ladies and gentlemen, everybody, be blessed and be a blessing. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.